And this week we could have some really great conversations because we're about to hear a Christ follower named Paul pray for us. And it's, it's, we're, in, we're in Ephesians, and this is one of the first two prayers in the letter to the Ephesians that he prays for these disciples of Jesus, that he prays for us. And this prayer from Paul is full of so much emotional depth and just extravagant expectation. And, and what's amazing is this really expansive prayer comes from some super dark circumstances of what Paul's going through. Um, you might recall, if you've been here for a previous week, that Paul is in prison. He's under house arrest, going on five years now. And so the prayer that we're about to hear comes from a jail cell. It comes from a guy who is in chains, chained to a Roman soldier. And Paul's prayer is that God would open our eyes and Here's the thing, I can't do this for you. You can't give this gift to the person to your left or to your right to open their eyes. But if God opened our eyes, if God gave us this gift this morning, it could change everything for you and for me. We look at Paul's prayer and we see that God has already given him this gift of, of open eyes. And so that's now what he's praying for us too. Uh, bold text. So here we go. Ephesians, so read along, me, re- read along with me anywhere on the screen you see bold, uh, bold text. So here we go. Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thus far, God's word. I, uh, I can't get over the fact that this prayer came out of a jail cell. Uh, this is not how I would talk. This is not how I would pray. But why is Paul in jail? Um, you might remember that five years previous in Ephesus, the same community that he's writing to now, in Ephesus, when he was first there, Paul's preaching about the resurrection of Jesus began to set people free from their attachment to idols. And if you've been in church circles uh, for any length of time, the, the topic of idols will come up. But I don't want us to make the mistake of judging these people as backwards and outdated, and that's just something that people did back then. Because an idol is not something just for people back then who didn't know any better. It's a very human thing to, 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 to move towards an idol. Um, an idol is basically a God substitute. It's a God substitute that can come in all shapes and forms. It could be made out of something. It could be an idea, but it's a God substitute. It's anything that we depend on to give us a sense of security or protection when it comes to things that we're afraid of. We're, we're, we're afraid, we're freaking out about something, and then it's our God substitute in that moment. And all of us are susceptible to different kinds of fears. There's, there's the fear of running out of money to be able to pay your bills. There's the fear that somebody else is going to come along at your job, and they're going to be better at your job than you are, and you're going to be replaced. There's, there's the fear that somebody whose opinion really matters to us a lot 
is going to criticize us and judge us for how we're living our life. There's the fear that, for, that some of us carry around that I'm never going to get married. Uh, th- this, is, this is how it's always going to be for me. Uh, I want to be married, but it's not happening. Or there's the fear that if, we don't, if I don't keep up in all of my relationships, if I'm not awesome to my friends and relatives and all these different people, if I don't just maintain this level of excellence and awesomeness in all of my relationships at all times, at, at a certain point, those folks are going to abandon me. They're going to walk away from me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be lonely. There's all kinds of things that we could be afraid of. And when it comes to those things that we're afraid of, we might not look to like a physical statue or a divine being to seek their help, but we all have some kind of go-to resource when it comes to the things that we're afraid of. Um, A core fear for me is not having enough knowledge or facts to be able to handle some kind of unknown situation that's gonna come my way. And so for me, I can have a healthy or unhealthy relationship with books. If you've been to my house, there's books on shelves, there's books in containers under the bed, there's books in our storage shed that I haven't gotten to in like years, but I have them there just in case, you know, for whatever situation I might face. And, And books, I love it. I love learning and books can really be a source of like life and learning for me, but I can also... When I'm, when I'm freaking out about something, I will impulsively go on Amazon and I'll buy like three books as a way to make up for some way in which I'm feeling afraid or deficient that I don't know how to handle a certain situation. And my, my thinking is if I just get enough knowledge, if I just think about this enough, I can think my way out of whatever problem I'm facing. And we all, we all have different fears. We all deal with our fears differently. That's my way. But all of us have some kind of go-to jerk response reaction when we're facing something that makes us anxious. And if you lived in Ephesus, many people depended on the goddess Artemis as their go-to. She was, she brought, she was the goddess who supposedly brought fertility and prosperity and protection to your life. And as this visual reminder in your house, and maybe you've experienced this in like, um, there's certain restaurants and things like that where you'll see a statue in there with maybe some incense or things like that. Very similar in Ephesian households or people who would visit Ephesus and then go bring it back home, there would be these silver shrines, these silver idols of the, the image of Artemis as this reminder of, oh yeah, this is the goddess that whenever I'm going through this or this or this, I can call on her. And the Ephesian um, silversmiths, they made a lot of money off of idol sales because apparently there's a lot of fear at work in people's lives. A lot of fear and then a lot of money that came from that fear. But as a result of Paul coming to Ephesus and preaching the good news of Jesus, that he was the one who had defeated death that he was the one who was bringing about this whole new world in the, in the shell of the old one, people began to see that there was nothing else to be afraid of anymore. And so they stopped buying their silver shrines to Artemis. They burnt all these magical scrolls and all these things that they were depending on for a sense of security, a sense of protection for what they were going, on, going through. But this was good news only for some people. For the Ephesian idol makers, this was the worst news in the world because their very livelihood depended on people being held captive to fear because the more fearful people you have, the, more, the better your idol sa- sales are for that quarter. And so when idol sales began to drop, they, they started a citywide riot, which led to Paul eventually being imprisoned. So Paul writes this amazing and hopeful, expansive prayer from jail. And I don't want to make Paul larger than life, he was a real human being just like you and me. I'm, I'm sure there's times when he suffered immense discouragement for what he was going through. 
I'm sure there were times that he prayed, God, would you release me? Would you get me out of this situation? I'm sure there were times when he was asking God, why? Why God? Why me? After all, Paul was, he was taught to pray from the Psalms prayer book. And there's so many Psalms that would have given Paul permission to pray those kinds of prayers. But for some reason here, his prayer for us and for the Ephesian Christians, it's different. By grace, Paul has been given eyes to see his circumstances from the perspective of heaven, from, from Jesus himself. His eyes have been opened, and Paul prays that we would be given the same gift for what we're going through. Paul prays that we're going to be given the same vantage point, and so Paul prays for God to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, this is not a prayer for the presence of the capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's a prayer that the Holy Spirit would give us a gift, that the Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and revelation. And, and the word Paul uses for revelation is apocalypse. Um, you've probably heard the word apocalypse uh, thrown around uh, in like, some of your favorite TV uh, shows or movies or even in, new, in the news, things like that. When people use the word apocalypse or apocalyptic, what, what, what are people describing when they use this word? Let me hear. What, what kinds of events? End of the world. Zombies. Yes. <laughs> End of the world. Zombies. Yeah. Yeah. It's all falling apart. It's all going to heck. Yeah. Yeah, so in, in the first century, this, this word simply meant to open up, like you'd open up a door or you would uh, lift the lid off of something or you'd open a curtain. So um, let's have an apocalypse right now. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the apocalypse of, of Curtis Vanderslice. <laughs> He's been back there for a while. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> That was an apocalypse, and it wasn't too bad, right? It was actually kind of great. So, Paul is praying that we would have an apocalypse. Paul is praying, thanks buddy, Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would pull back the curtain on our, on our vision of life so that we would know God as God really is. That's what, why Paul prays, I want you to know God. I want you to know God firsthand, intimately. I want you to know the benefits of knowing God. But if you and I are going to know God, we need a double work of grace from God. First of all, God has to open up to us for us to know him. Jesus said, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws that person. God has to open up to us, but then God has to help us understand what he's opened up to us. And this is true of any relationship, wherever we want to have more depth and, and, and intimacy in that relationship— in my marriage with Sarah, in order for me to know Sarah, Sarah has to open up to me about things. And I could, I mean, she, she didn't, doesn't have to do that. I could, I could observe her and I can make guesses about who Sarah is, but I'm not going to know the real Sarah unless Sarah opens up to me. But then there's so many times when Sarah also has to help me understand whatever it is that she's opened up to me. Um, Sarah's told me the story about when she was asked as a little girl to step out of a family picture. She was asked to step out of a family picture so that her mom and her stepdad and their two boys could have a family picture with only them. Yeah, right? And then Sarah helps me, though. She helps me understand, Andy, now you know why I have a harder time. 
in moments when I'm feeling rejected, when I'm feeling pushed out, when I'm feeling like people are drawing a tight circle around themselves and I'm not included in that circle, because it's a moment from my childhood that resurfaces, and Andy, I can't just think my way out of how I'm feeling in that moment. I I have to just ride that out, and I'm going to have a hard time for a while, and God's working on me and and healing me, but but now I, I know, okay, in a moment where Sarah's feeling excluded, there's, there's this, she's right back there to that moment as a little girl. And we, we, have, we all have moments like that. Um, it's, it's, but it's also important for me uh, to know this about Sarah because it's really cool. I see Sarah making space for other people. I see Sarah drawing a wide circle to include other people. It's really important to her to create spaces for people who don't belong and to include them so that they can experience something different than what she experienced. And her pain has given her radar to include other people. And that's what God can even do with our, our moments of wounding and pain where now suddenly we have eyes to see it because we experienced it and we go, I want something different for somebody else. Sarah opened up to me, but she also had to help me understand what it was that she opened up to me. And it's the same when it comes to knowing God. That's why Paul prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. Your heart, it's, we're, we're not talking about the blood pumping control center of of who you are that sends blood everywhere. When we talk about the heart, we're talking about the control center of your emotions, of your intellect, of, of of your choices. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart come all these different decisions for, for what we're going to do, do with our life. And apparently, according to Paul, he wants us to understand your, your heart has eyes. It's kind of a funky picture, but it, the idea is that we, we look out at the world from our control center. And if you have not yet seen uh, uh, the movie by Pixar, uh, Inside Out, I I highly recommend this movie. It's fantastic. Uh, Rent it and watch it or buy it. You're going to gain such a great picture of this eyes of your heart picture that Paul describes, where there's, there's, there's actual characters who are looking out through the eyes of this little girl and from their, from the control center. Uh, because that's what you and I have. We have these eyes of our heart, our, our control center, our outlook. We, we talk about somebody's outlook on life, and that's such a great way to, to put it. That's something that's happening in all, inside of all of us. All of us are looking out from our control center, and our outlook has been deeply shaped by our past, by our wounds, by our personality, by our upbringing. Our outlook determines what we believe to be possible, it determines whatever we expect to see. There, you could say that whatever you expect is what you're going to find. If, you, if the eyes of your heart expect that the world is going to be cruel and that people are going to withhold themselves from you, you're going to find that everywhere you go. You'll be like, see, there it is again. If you expect, if the eyes of your heart expect that people can be trusted and that things are going to work out, that's what you're going to find. We might call that person like an, an optimist, but that is, that is their outlook. That is the, that's the way they've chosen to navigate the world. Whatever you expect is what you're going to find. And so that's why Paul prays that God would enlighten our eyes, that we could see reality like God sees it. God wants to give us corrective vision. Uh, len- God wants to give us corrective lenses uh, for our vision of life. Uh, it's like when I was in third grade and I was in the car with my mom and I pointed out a deer on the nearby hillside and my mom informed me that the deer was a haystack. And so then she immediately drove me to Kaiser and we got a glasses uh, prescription for me. And then I suddenly understood on Monday why all the kids in the back row could see what was on the chalkboard. And uh, that's what Paul now prays for us, 
that we might not be seeing things clearly. We might not be able to account for everything, and we need to be given lenses to be able to account for much more than what we think we can see or what we feel about our circumstances. So he prays for our vision. He prays, God, enlighten their eyes. Open and expand them. Get, get a hold of the very control center of their being, because I know if you do this, God, it'll change everything. So, you're meeting with your community group this week or uh, you're chatting with somebody about uh, what we got into this Sunday and you're trying to remind yourself, what did we talk about? Uh, two words, two things that Paul prays for us. Hope and power. Let me hear you say hope. Hope because our hope for the future is gonna shape our present. And power, let me hear you say power. power. Because we can come to see what the Ephesian Christians came to see, that God is way more powerful than anything that I'm afraid of, anything else that's making me anxious. Jesus has been victorious over all of those things, and today you and I could lean into that victory. If God opens our eyes, it could change everything for how we go into this day and how we go into this week and how we go into the rest of our life. So before we talk about this, I'm just going to do what Paul does, and I'm going to pray that God opens our eyes to see this, because I, I can't give this for, to you, and you can't give this to each other. This is only something that God can give us. So if you would, uh, please pray with me. Um, God, I need to be the first to admit that I have been finding what I expect to see, and um, what I have been finding uh, lately, it wouldn't be described with words like hope, or power, or victory. Um, God, I really need a reset. And, and I'm sure there's so many of my brothers and sisters here this morning that need a reset too. We need you to open our eyes, God. We, we want to trust your vision for what's really going on in the world and, and in our lives. We want this vision to shape everything. So please, God, give us this gift. Open and enlighten the eyes of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so the first thing that Paul prays that we would see is our hope that we would know the hope to which he's called you. You and I, we can't make it in this life without hope. There's just no way. And Paul wants us to know that this hope is connected to this calling that God has on our life. God has a part for you and me to play in what, in what God is up to in the world. And what's God up to? Uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. God's plan is reunion. God is going to reunite heaven God's realm with earth, our realm, and he's going to do this under Jesus. And this future hope for where God's taking things, it puts a calling on our life. Knowing where the future is going, it affects our present. If we have put our hope in Jesus, the calling on our lives is that God is at work to reunite us to our full, true humanity. You and I know there's so many ways that we are held back and not who we, we know we want to be. We, we have this sense that I, I could be so much more. I could handle that situation so much more differently. I, there's, there's the mom or the friend or the coworker or just the human being that I want to be, and we feel held back by that in so many ways. But the hope that we have is that the Jesus that we have come to know and love and follow He's the fullest and truest human. You see Jesus living out his life with the Father and how he, he, he reacts when he's tired and when he faces opposition and how he is as a friend and everything. You look at Jesus and you are seeing on display the fullest, truest expression of what full humanity looks like. Jesus says, I came to, that they would have life, that they have it to the full. Everything about Jesus reflects what a whole and integrated human life looks like. He is, he, is, he is the one we're looking to to say, Jesus, I, I want what you have. I want to be like you. 
And so we look at Jesus, and Paul wants us to know that we can be confident that he who began a good work in you, he's going to carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus is the finish line. He's the goal. He's Jesus, God sees Jesus, and he sees us, and he's at work to close that gap between what Jesus looks like and how Jesus would respond to things and how, what we look like and how we would respond to things. God is using everything in our life, not just the great stuff, also the really broken, difficult, painful stuff. God is using all of those things so that we would be fully human, so that we would be everything that God always meant for us to be, that we would become just like Jesus. And the promise is God will finish what God started. And maybe some of us, that was all we needed to hear today. Uh, Any ways that we feel like it has been two steps forward and 18 steps back, uh, whatever kind of week or day you've had, you need to know that God is the one who's going to finish what he has started. He's Christian, he's going to finish it. And that's our, our hope. Um, Christian hope is not an I wish kind of a thing. Christian hope is based in who God is. It's based in his character. It's based in his ability to carry it out. That's why we can actually be hopeful for it and not wishful. Uh, if, if it was up to me, man, forget it. <laughs> uh, lower your standards for what is possible in Andy Matson's life if it's up to Andy to carry this out. But Paul's prayer is based on Uh, who God is, his character, and his hope that Jesus is going to return. Paul's prayer is that we would know this hope because the way that we conceive the future sculpts the present. It gives contour and tone to nearly every action and thought throughout the day. If our sense of future is weak, we live listlessly. Much uh, Much emotional and mental illness and most suicides occur among men and women who feel that they have no hope. They have no future. But the Christian faith has always been characterized by a strong and focused sense of future with belief in the second coming of Jesus as the most distinctive detail. And then a little bit, little bit more. The practical effect of this belief is to charge each moment of the present with hope. For if the future is dominated by the coming again of Jesus, there's little room left on the screen for projecting our anxieties and our fantasies. It takes the clutter out of our lives. We're far more free to respond spontaneously to the freedom of God. So good, right? That's what God taught Eugene Peterson about hope. Um, let's chat with two or three people around us about this. This is something we do from time to time. We're just, uh, just a way to, to, to chew on this and process a little bit before moving any further. So uh, with two or three p- other people around you, um, what do you think about this? How does Christian hope for the future shape? Our- All right. I'll say what I say every time. If you guys are having an awesome moment and some really profound stuff happening, community groups, community groups, community groups. All right, come on back. So Paul, Paul prays that we would know our hope, um, but now Paul prays that we would know God's power, hope and power. And this is the part I'm especially excited to talk to you guys about. Um, this is what Paul reminds, uh, just a reminder what Paul said. He said, uh, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, there's a lot there, but here's the thing. 
This, this is the news that set the Ephesian Christians free from all of the fears that used to hold them captive um, and made them so dependent on all these other God substitutes. This is the news that gave the Ephesian Christians this hope for their future, and it was a future hope that changed their present. Paul is saying that if, if guys to see what God is up to in, in the world, and that would have everything to do with our everyday life, all the things that, that, that we carry around, all the fears that we have, this could change everything for me and for you. It did for the Ephesian Christians. It set them free, and that's what's available to us this morning. I can't give this gift to you. God has to give me this gift. God has to give you this gift. But let's just pause here and just get personal with this for a second. Just 30 seconds in silence. I just want you to consider... Lately, what has been dominating your outlook on life? Lately, what, what has been causing you fear? What has been causing you to close up? What is it that has been robbing you of your life's energy and you just feel depleted? Just take about 30 seconds and think about what that is. Try to get real specific. And I'm not going to ask anybody to share this, but you're going to hold this before God for the remaining time and go, God, do you have anything to say about this? Sometimes when we talk about hope, we say, I wish, but this is not an I wish. Uh, It's only in Disney movies that your wishes get granted. Uh, it's only uh, when it comes to human effort do our, our wishes actually come true. When we're saying I wish, we're like, well, you know, maybe that'll work out. Christian hope is so different. Paul knows that we, we don't have to say I wish to the things that we're facing right now. We can say I hope, which is very different. Paul says that you and I can say yes to hope, and to prove it, he wants to remind us of what God's power can do, what God's power has done. The power that he's talking about is the power to overcome death because Jesus is raised from the dead. It's the power to overcome spiritual resistance because Jesus is seated as king over all. And it's the power to overcome human resistance because God has placed everything under King Jesus. He's the head of the church. Now, if God answered Paul's prayer for you and me, then God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. God would enlighten our outlook to see how powerful God is. These would be the lenses that we would look at everything through. God would give us new eyes to see what Jesus has to say about the death that's been at work all around us lately. He has a lot to say about the resistance that you and I have been experiencing in the spiritual realm and even from other human people. So God, you, you know what we're dealing with. I can't give this gift to anybody in this room. I can't bring this gift for myself. But if God, if you give us this gift, if you open our eyes, I know it could change everything. Please, God, open the eyes of our heart. Let us see things from the perspective of heaven through Jesus. Give us this hope, Lord God. So there was a lot that we, we read in that, that, that Ephesians passage, but the, the, the basic thing of what's going on here, what Paul wants us to know is that in Jesus, God has defeated the power of death and the fallen powers and authorities in the spiritual and the human realms. And God has installed Jesus as the cosmic ruler over all of reality. How's that for a new vision of life? How often does cosmic ruler come up in your everyday conversations? Probably not a lot. 
But Jesus, I mean, when, when we picture Jesus, maybe we picture him, you know, I love Jesus. You know, he's a friend of sinners. He's a healer of broken minds and bodies. But Paul wants us to know, yes, to all that, but also Jesus, the Jesus you know and love and follow has been installed as the cosmic ruler over all reality. And we need to take that very seriously. Jesus is very human, and he can meet us in our humanity, but, we, but so many of us need to know how powerful God is. And that power is on our side. Because there's more. In Jesus, God is carrying out his victory. He's carrying out his victory over death and over any spiritual and human forces that are resisting his inbreaking rule in the world. Through his church. God's doing that through his church, through me and you and other believers gathered around the world. The church is God's plan A to overcome the effects of evil powers in the world. Sometime after this, you should ask Liz a little bit about what she does at Facebook, but she would tell you that her team is pushing back darkness. Uh, you, you know what, ha- what can happen on social media and, and all the ways that something so good could also be used for so much destructive evil in the world. Her team is pushing back darkness, and you should ask her about it. So let's talk about Jesus' victory and what it would look like for me and you to live into that victory. Paul says that King Jesus is seated above every rule and authority and power, rulers, authority, and every name that's invoked. Now, you might not know this, but when Paul describes rulers, authorities, powers, and dominions, what you need to know is that he is, these, these are very specific words to describe human powers, but also spiritual powers. These are the words that you would use to describe different classes of, of angels in the angelic realm. There were powers, there were rulers, there were dominions. And you and I have probably been affected by these powers, even if we didn't know it at the time. They have an influence in our lives, in the places where we work, in our families, in our neighborhoods. And let's just, we'll just get personal with this. Um, maybe you've had the experience that you received some fresh kind of vision for your life. There was some fresh conviction for how you wanted to live, something that you wanted to step into, something that you wanted to become. And so maybe as a response, you started making efforts to live more ethically or to stand up for a particular group of people that were being pushed down or forgotten or exploited or you were at work to break out of addiction. But the moment that you crossed that line and you started to move in that new direction, you felt something push back. And maybe it came from other people in your life. Maybe it was just funky things kind of that you're picking up on in the atmosphere. But whatever it was, you're just like, man, I want this thing that's so good. What is, what is, what is happening all around me? And you experienced resistance. Maybe in the company where you worked. Or maybe as you were trying to get well or get sober or get healthy, all these people just started like turning on you and getting really weird around you. Uh, because you trying to get healthy started to call out all the unhealth in them. Maybe it came from influential people in a church where there was weird resistance coming from them that seems just so out of character. Maybe it came from your neighbors or it was even just, it was from within yourself. You, you wanted something, but there was this war raging inside of you where you're like, I want this, but then I, I, like, I don't want this. What's going on? And it's like the people or the system or the addiction, it had like a head of steam behind it, almost like it had backup, like an unnatural degree of backup where you're like, this is weird. Am I speaking gibberish, or have you experienced this before? Anybody? Uh, yeah, okay. Even lately? Anybody experienced this lately? You're like, yeah, the, the fog or the pushback? Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the theologian Walter Wink, he wants us to help us understand the resistance that you and I experience, and he uses Paul's language of powers. 
Now, I don't, if you read this guy's stuff, I think it's very helpful, but just know I don't agree with everything he says. You might come across some things that you're like, eh, um, and me too, but um, he has been a tremendous help for me to understand how the human and spiritual powers can work together in the world to resist what God's up to in the world. Um, Walter Wink argues that all corporate institutions have some kind of corporate sign up with Jesus and his kingship identity and with a mission and with values that either line up with Jesus and his kingship or are set up with its own agenda and push back against what Jesus wants to do in the world, which means that some of these groups and systems, whether they are large corporations or it's your family system or a school board or a government or even, God help us, churches, can become so corrupted by evil and by this anti-kingdom agenda that the biblical language of spiritual possession, the biblical language of spiritual powers, it becomes the only way to really explain the phenomena that's happening at a group level where you're just like, this is weird. What's going on? Some of us have been resisted by these powers. But what Paul wants us to know is that Jesus has turned the tide in the battle. Jesus, if, if our eyes could be open to see what Jesus has accomplished, we're going to be better prepared to be able to deal with these powers when we encounter them and, and to, to, not be, to, not be, to not be naive to how they work in the world. As Christ followers, we can't be naive to how these powers are at work in the world if we really want to cooperate with Jesus and what he's doing. And Walter Wink, he gave us a formula for understanding the powers. Um, it goes like this, P equals O plus I. Why don't you say that with me? P equals O plus I. And this is what this means. P is the powers. O is the outer visible form of it. And then I is the inner invisible essence. And um, are there any slides earlier uh, where it's just the formula? Oh, shoot. Well, I just gave away my own. Gave away my own ending. Oh, well, just pretend you don't, you're not looking at that, that lower part, which now that I say that, that's all you're going to be able to focus on. Okay, so powers. Um, there's, all, there's all kinds of uh, powers at work in the world, but take, for example, something that we all have to deal with, money. Jesus uh, calls it mammon, and he says you're either going to hate God or love mammon or the other way around. Here's the thing. Money is just made out of metal. Uh, dollar bills are made out of paper credit cards out of plastic, banks and buildings and advertisements and financial policies. All these things are the O in that formula. They are the, they're the outer shell, the outer visible form of mammon. But we're not accounting for everything if we're only focusing on the outer form of what's going on. Because there's also the I factor, P equals O plus I. There's an invisible form at work when it comes to money. We're you and I can be lured to trusting our lives to money, to depend, our, our very livelihood and sense of well-being and everything comes from how much or how little money we have in our lives. And so it gets really hard to break free from money's grip on our lives. But the real power, the God that wants to be Lord of our lives, who wants us to trust him and seeks to hold us captive, Jesus names that God. Jesus names that power. He, he says it's mammon. Because Jesus wants us to know mammon is not a neutral player in your life. It, it, it wants to take you in a direction. It has an agenda for you, and it's not a kingdom of God agenda, and we can't be naive to this power in our life. That's one power, but then there's also the power of pornography. There's the outer form of it, magazines and films and actresses and film directors and websites, 
And from the, free, from the standpoint of a, it's just their minded society, uh, some of our friends and neighbors would be like, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? It's just there's consenting adults making money by providing a service for some other consenting adults, whatever, you know. But that argument is only acknowledging the outer form of what's, what's going on. Christians cannot be naive to what's really going on here. There is an I factor. There is, a, there is an invisible essence to all of this that's at work where women and children are being exploited, where human beings are being charged up with lust. People are being offered a false source for relief and comfort. And once you're ensnared by this, it just slowly starts to erode at your soul and you become less and less human the further and further you go. And maybe you or I have experienced uh, resistance when it comes to the powers of mammon or lust. Maybe this week you'll think about other powers. But after you've taken enough knocks, you, if, after you've res- tried to resist, you start to think, man, what's the point of trying? Like, I, I don't know how I could ever get this thing out of my life. It has its talents so deeply in my heart and my thinking and my actions. This, this thing just seems too strong. It seems, it seems too big. Who could ever possibly break free from this thing? Is, is this how it's always going to be in my life until Jesus comes back? And, and we, we, we start to give in to discouragement and despair, and we think it's always going to be that way. And, and into that atmosphere, into that mindset, Paul says, I have great news for you. I want to pray that God would open the eyes of your heart so that you could know that Jesus has defeated those powers. That Jesus sits enthroned above those powers and he is at work to set people free from those powers. You could cooperate with those powers or you could cooperate with Jesus and his victory in the world over those powers because the powers, and here's the part where you actually can, oh, hey, you actually can, uh, you can actually can, uh, uh, okay, so, so when it came to Jesus' crucifixion, the powers were at work. And the gospel writers want us to know this, that there was the physical, outer, visible form of what was going on. There was Caiaphas, there was Pilate, there was Annas, there was Herod, there was Rome, there was the mob, there was Judas. Things that you could, you know, if you had a camera going, you could go, yeah, here's that person who played a part and this thing that played a part. But then there's things that, cam- that a CCTV feed would not pick up on, this in- inner invisible essence of what was going on behind Jesus' crucifixion. We see religion and politics going totally off the rails in just some crazy ways, and we also see demonic influence and possession at work. But Paul wants us to know that when it comes to P equals O plus I, that God has won the victory over both realms, the outer visible thing that you and I can pick up on, and then the invisible. Paul wants us to know Jesus won the victory over both realms, and the way he won, and that's why we have this, this lamb here, uh, this lamb banner as a, as a, as a reminder, Jesus won by losing. Jesus won by losing on the cross. It looked like he was losing, by all accounts. It looked like, here's another, here's another guy who's tried to get a movement started, and there he is, crucified between two criminals. Oh, well, I guess we'll wait for somebody else to come along and give us some hope. It looked like he was losing, and those who thought that they were winning had actually lost. The resurrected Jesus was victorious over death, and Paul wants us to have our eyes opened to see things, to see that Jesus is seated over all those powers. 
This is the good news, that if God opens our eyes to see it and trust it, it could, see, it could change everything when it comes to the things that we're afraid of, the things that intimidate us, the ways that we have tried to resist and tried to step into the new things that God has for us. We can see that Jesus is stronger and we only need to fear him. And if we fear Jesus, then there is nothing else to fear. Nothing else to fear. But this is not always obvious. This isn't the way that we look at it, and that's why Paul prays for us. God, open the eyes of their heart. Let them see what's really going on. Let them see that you've been victorious over the powers. So, what do you and I do with this information? We cooperate with Jesus the victor and his victory, and we do this in all kinds of ways. One, we choose practices and people that are placing Jesus' victory in front of our eyes on a regular basis. If we're only watching Fox News or Huffington Post or Time or People Magazine or reading Wired or Rolling Stone or the Wall Street Journal, we're never really going to know what's really going on in the world. We have to take control of all the different digital screens that we have in front of us and around us all the time because these things can dominate our vision and we need to soak in the book that opens up Jesus's kingship to our eyes. But we can't do this alone, and Sunday mornings this time is not enough. We need to be intentional about surrounding ourselves with other people and other practices that are going to put Jesus's kingship right in front of us, where people are praying for us, they know what we're dealing with, they know the opposition we're facing, and they are ready to pray for us and encourage us. And together, we remind each other that God has an alternative vision for what's really going on in the world. Two, we treat people in light of Jesus' victory. What, what really stifles the gospel in our lives and in our world is not the big sins of sexual and financial corruption. Yes, it's terrible when those things happen, but what stifles the, the gospel uh, so much more is just these real subtle sins of gossip. And when we objectify people, we, we, uh, based on how they look, or don't look, or what we feel like they could offer to us or not offer to us, we dehumanize people with our words, we dehumanize people with our thoughts, and when we do that, we play into the hands of powers that Jesus defeated. And it's just this this subtle thing that happens all the time that we're not usually paying attention to. And so, from now on, in light of Jesus' victory, it can no longer be acceptable for you and I to speak poorly about or objectify anybody that Jesus has died for. We just draw a line and say, no more. That's not acceptable for somebody who's in Christ. Three, we share our money to affirm Jesus' victory. Mammon wants to keep us to itself through us keeping our money to ourselves, thinking that our money is our money. But it's not. It belongs to King Jesus. And so tithing breaks the power, the spell that mammon has on our lives, which is why the in-service offering that we take is not disconnected from the worship service. Tithing is worship because it's this regular reminder that Jesus and not mammon is king in my life, and he has the final say. And fourth, we eat the meal that celebrates the victorious death of King Jesus. For so many of us, uh, communion has been the time when I'm supposed to feel really crummy about myself. And 
if I feel crummy enough, then maybe I'm in a place to take the bread and the cup. Um, and I'm supposed to think about how poor of a job I've been doing as a Christ follower, and then I'm really, I'm really ready if I beat myself up enough. But the bread and the cup are not about you, and it's not about me. The bread and the cup is about Jesus. Jesus said, take this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, declares that the apparent defeat of Jesus, the Lamb, was actually his great victory over everything that stood in his way. Death and to Hades, that he's alive forevermore, that he has the keys to death and to Hades, that he is coming again. And that even now, even if it doesn't seem obvious, he's seated on the throne of the universe. That's why we take the bread and the cup to remind ourselves, God, there's something more that's true, truer than what I see, truer than what I feel. Give me your perspective, Jesus. As I take this bread and cup into me, let me take your perspective into me and let it change everything. I trust your vision, Jesus, for reality more than my own eyes, more than my own feelings. So we're going to worship Jesus, our victorious king. The worship team and the communion servers are going to come forward now, and um, let's come forward to receive the bread and the cup, which is the body and the blood of Jesus, our victorious king. And the communion servers, um, you'll, you'll take a piece of bread, and you'll pull it off, and you'll dip it into the cup. And as you do that, they're going to speak a blessing over you, the gift that only God can give us. And the blessing is this. They're going to say, may God open the eyes of your heart. So let's, uh, let's stand now for worship, and you can come forward at any time to receive communion.